0: God, as we come in tonight, it's easy to come in with a lot of things going on. Thoughts in a million different places. Thoughts on the Christmas Eve meal and family time after this. Getting things in the oven, getting things prepared, getting things ready and wrapped for tomorrow. And sometimes, Lord, there, this, is, this is a season, yes, of joy and fondness and memories, but God, we confess it's also a season in which we can feel loneliness. Sadness because of loss in a unique kind of way. And so we come into this holiday season, Lord, to to this Christmas time with a range of emotions, feelings, thoughts about these things. and, And yet, Lord, in the midst of those, we can so easily get distracted distracted from who you are centrally, what it is you've come to do, and the very thing that can bring our hearts joy even in the midst of all of those difficult circumstances. And so that's what we ask for tonight. Spirit of God, work through the Word of God to show us Christ in the Scriptures, show us the cross, show us the resurrection, show us the good news. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, the Lord has been good to us at Gospel Life Church in many ways, right? But one of the ways is that year after year at Advent, texts in the books that we're preaching through, because our our primary mode of preaching at at GLC is to preach through books of the Bible. We don't do it all the time, but probably 95%, 90% of the time we're preaching, we're actually going through a book of the Bible. And yet year after year, the texts that we're preaching through at the time, whether it's been the middle of Revelation, or Zechariah, or now through the center of John's gospel account, the texts correspond just so amazingly well with the themes of Advent week by week, right? And so while this is surely God's mercy to us that I get excited in sermon prep, seeing, you know, doing the work ahead each year and seeing the texts that are going to line up with Advent and thinking, praise the Lord, right? Surely it's also God's mercy to us in a much bigger way, because it shouldn't really surprise us that that's the case, you know. It shouldn't surprise us that every text we would find ourselves in the scriptures would point us to this central miracle of Christianity. All the Bible centers on what Christians call the incarnation. God becoming flesh, dwelling among us. Miracle of miracles, it's the miracle that makes the cross and the resurrection as we move forward in John possible. The fact that God became flesh. And tonight's text really gives us the setting of the incarnation, you know. And what I mean by that is it addresses the primary reason that Jesus had to come. And listen, we, so we talk about it a lot. It's a particular theme in John's gospel, Okay. But one of the reasons we talk about it a lot, and one of the reasons why it's uniquely helpful to talk about it at Christmas is because if you get this wrong, you get everything wrong about Jesus. Everything wrong about Jesus. Like, you can have... You can come into to Christmas, or you can come into, to like, a church life or, or a Christian life with a, a kind of a belief in Jesus where you desire for him to be the one to come and save you. You know? And, and sometimes I think we can come into... The Christmas season with a kind of sentimentalized version of all these things. We can sing our songs in a sentimentalized kind of way, you know. We desire for him to be the one who came, for him to be the one to save us. But if we miss what he came to save us from, you know. If we miss the reason that he came. We miss him. We miss him. Okay, so in order to understand why what we celebrate together tonight. You know, in this song where, and I love the way we did this tonight, where we can hear the voices of the the voice of the congregation lifted up in song and in celebration for what Jesus did. The reason w- why this is so vital, you know, the reason why we we pull out the brightest colored wrapping paper and we feast with rich foods tomorrow and we celebrate richly is because of the rich blessing of Christ. But listen, to understand it, we have to understand what it accomplished, like what Jesus accomplished when he came. Like so, imagine. Imagine if we approached any other discipline this way, giving it reverence and authority without actually understanding what it accomplished. All right, so a doctor. Imagine a doctor giving out prescriptions, telling patients to take it without himself having any idea of how, what the pills would do for the patient in any sense, OK? Or imagine a student who gives himself or herself to a particular area of study from undergraduate to graduate to doctoral, postdoctoral without really any idea about how their studies might be helpful or beneficial to themselves or the world around them. Fastidiously following an exercise or training regimen, being seriously disciplined about it without any understanding of the benefits or purpose behind it. Like, nobody would do this. Nobody does this. Doctors give out prescriptions because they, they know they're treating a very specific illness. And they believe they'll have clinical results that they'll see as a result of the treatment they're giving, right? Like, and passionately so, and rightly so. Students will give themselves to the serious and rigorous study because they've been deeply moved by the significance of a particular area of knowledge and, you know, they become passionate about it. Athletes fastidiously train their bodies with real discipline because of the performance they know they'll, they'll receive in whatever sport they desire to compete at in a high level, you know? Like, all of these things are connected. But I think dangerously. It can be easy for us, especially this time of year, you know, but all year as Christians, it can be easy to do what seems unthinkable in every other discipline when we reflect on the incarnation of Jesus. You know, we sing these, the words of these carols, you know, we can. We can sing them, and they're, they're, they're true, and they're good, and they're powerful. We can sing them. We can read through the Christmas story before we open presents. We can, we can give a hearty amen to Linus, you know, in Charlie Brown's Christmas special. Say, that's what I'm talking about, you know. We can do all those things while at the same time not really reflecting on why it's so central. Like, what, what good it's done, what it's accomplished for us in the world. You know, and this is so crucial. And so this evening, I, what, what's, the most, um, what's the most important thing we could do together? Like, what's, what's the most helpful and practical thing for us to do together as Christians? Well, to reflect on the center of Advent. So tonight we're going to see three actions of Advent. From our text, from our text right here in John chapter 12, where we find ourselves in our series through John's Gospel... Three actions of Advent, all of them related to this ongoing contrast that we've seen, right? So how does John's Gospel open up in chapter 1? A contrast between light and darkness. You know, the light broke into the darkness, okay? So that, that contrast has continued on through John's account, and we're going to see three actions that are all tied to that. So tonight we're going we're gonna to look together. Here are the three actions, but but... We'll pause at each one here in a minute. We're going to see light that's kept from darkness, light that looks like darkness, and light that pierces darkness. Okay, light that's kept from darkness, light that looks like darkness, and light that pierces darkness. And if that seems confusing or intriguing or whatever, hang with me. I think it's going to be of some benefit. So to start, we'll actually, we're going to head back to verse 36. And this is where we're going to see the setting of the incarnation. And here we see, this is where we see light that's kept from darkness. Light that's kept from darkness, starting in verse 36. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed in what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. Lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. So... This is something that we talked about actually just a couple of weeks ago, December 3rd, first Sunday of Advent, right? Because right away we see this theme coming forward. Do you remember when we looked together at what we called the root of the promise, the root of the promise, the curse and its undoing, you know? So Lazarus was raised from the dead and it drew out this large crowd to see for themselves because here with Lazarus being raised, you have this clear visual portrayal that, that you know, here is the one who has power over the curse of death itself. You know, Lazarus is just a picture of that because as we talked about, he's raised to die again. He's raised to a kind of life that's temporary. But still, it's like this powerful picture, this portrayal that this is actually the man who has the power over death, over the curse. It's like, you know, the, the, like we talked about the snow melting in Narnia, right? The, the promise is, is Is real, it's true. The curse is coming undone. Right? And we talked about how you can't understand the promise throughout the scriptures, week one of Advent being like the candle of promise, the Old Testament prophecy. Like you can't understand the promise of this Messiah who's come to save his people unless you understand the root of the promise, sin and death. What it is that he came to save his people from. Like you won't see what makes The gospel, good news, gospel means good news. But you won't see what makes the good news good without seeing the situation that we're in first apart from Christ. And we see that here again in John 12 because this description from John is placed here that we might see, that we might understand the reason that Jesus came, the reason that we're here, the reason that Christians have celebrated this for the last 2,000 plus years, okay? Why Jesus had to come. Jesus says at the end of last week's text, he says, while you have the light, believe in the light, that you might become sons of the light. Jesus tells his followers, do you remember? Like, this was weeks ago, but he said, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, while I'm still here, while we're still on this side of my ministry, heading into the cross, right? And so throughout John's gospel account, he's telling them, he's saying, I am the light, that's come into the world, and and he's urging them, don't miss me. Like, don't mistake me for something else. This is crucial, and yet look at verse 37 with me right now. Though he had done so many signs before them, still they did not believe in him. You know, Jesus has come, and even in the midst of the incarnation itself, even seeing Jesus before their very eyes, you know, Even seeing the evidence of like, I mean, there's Lazarus raised from the dead. Still, they do not believe. And this is important. This is important because here's something that I've said myself in in my Christian life. You know that I've come back to thinking. It's this nagging thought that's come back to me. I've also heard my children talk this way when we talk through the scriptures and we've had this conversation pastorally I've heard a lot of people tell me something similar and it's like well I mean I wish I would have been alive when Jesus was on earth it can be easy to say that I wish I would have been here when he was here or I wish he was just like present here today the way that he was with his disciples because hey then it would make it easy for me to believe but it's like no (laughs) you know no it's not true even after the resurrection there are those who doubt you know, and it's it's happening again here. Here we see in John's account example after example after example of unbelief in the midst of incarnation. Why does our minds gravitate toward, well, man, I wish I was here when Jesus was here, because then it would be easy. Because we don't want to believe what's true about our hearts. Like, it's a lot easier to think that if if the circumstances around me were just so, you know, that if I could just make the right reforms, that if Jesus was here, that If everything was idyllic, well then yeah, of course I would believe. It's just that it's easier for me to believe that about myself. But what's the case? Look at verses 38 to 40. So that, okay, so, so, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Why? What what does this show us? So that. The words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. What word is that? Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. Lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn. And I would heal them. And listen, this can be really hard to understand. And this can be something where... It's understandable for the Christian to grapple with verses like these. We should be grappling with these verses. But here's what's not a question. There's no question that here we see the depravity of man on full display. The hardness of the human heart apart from the sheer grace of God right here in the text. Because, you know, once again we see that one of the results of the gospel is that it further hardens the human heart. You know, like... We'll hear the gospel and often we'll immediately want to reject it. Why? Because the gospel comes with this initial message that we're sinners in need of the Savior. And we don't want to hear that. You know, we don't like hearing that. It's really hard. And so our hearts can grow hard and we can push this away. Even though it's rooted in mercy and grace, we can push it away. Isaiah is the prophet who's quoted here, you know, and he's the one who is called to preach the glory of God, even though he was told ahead of time that preaching that would result in the hardness of heart of the people. He preached the glory of God to the people, yet the people couldn't believe, and it shouldn't surprise us then that here's Jesus, himself the very glory of God, come in human flesh, and he's despised and rejected by men. Here he stands before them, performing signs, wonders. They don't believe. He's despised. He's rejected. As he reveals himself, as he preaches, as he does these signs and wonders, people distance themselves from him. They don't want to believe. Indeed, they can't. You know, when we talk about, so why is this the case? Okay, well, when we talk through Advent together as a family, right? So through Advent, we have this Advent calendar And each day at the Advent calendar has a door that you open. And some of the doors has like a little figurine from the nativity, you know, where we kind of tell the story of Christmas throughout these 25 days together as a family. And so throughout these 25 days, one of the things we say kind of routinely is we'll say like, we'll set it up this way. We'll say immediately after sin enters the world in the garden, right, sin enters the world. A promise is made, right? We'll read Genesis 3:15, where this promise is made to send this chosen seed who's gonna crush the head of the serpent, okay? And so the people of God waited, and they waited, and they waited, right? And that promise to send the seed, this promised one, this, this chosen one, it's echoed in Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. It's echoed through their lives and like a, like as a type of Christ, but it's also echoed through the prophets. They're saying, He's coming, he's coming, he's coming. And so God's people are hearing this promise echoed and they're, they're waiting and they're waiting and they're waiting until finally 400 years of silence. Right? Like, until finally, for 400 years, God is not speaking to his people through, through the prophets. Right? Like, we were in darkness because of our sin. And while God made this promise that he would come, And while everything has always been rooted on this promise, he withheld the light for a time. Why? So that we would see our unbelief. So that we would see our need for a savior. So that we would see how blinded our eyes are, how hard our heart is apart from him. Like he withheld light so that we would come to grips with how dark The darkness of our hearts really is, you know, and this is light that's kept from darkness. Light was withheld because of sin, yes, but it was withheld for a time so that we could feel the weight of our need. Because the reality is, without that understanding, we won't ever look to Christ, you know. You know it's true, right? Like, imagine how absurd it would be, and I think this is kind of how it feels. Imagine how absurd it would be if we were all sitting together in a well-lit room in the middle of the day having a conversation and I like ran up to you full speed with a flashlight. Like, turn it on! Okay, good, you're welcome. You'd think I was nuts. What about the same situation? Except a group of friends are hiking together in a cave and they get lost and they lose their last light. They can't see their hands in front of their faces. And then a rescuer comes with a light and begins handing them out like, the flashlight held out appears as a good and welcome invitation to sight, vital for safety and well-being. But listen, the problem here isn't that Jesus is holding out a flashlight in the, in the daytime where people are like, what's the deal? Problem, that, like, that's not why people are in unbelief. The problem is once again, people have grown so accustomed to the dark that they don't realize they can't see. Right, it's the person hiking in the cave, can't see their eyes in front of their face, the light comes forward and they're like, ah, oh, why don't, get that out of my face, right? And this is exactly why light was withheld. It's precisely why the law was given. This is why we see repetition throughout the Old Testament of God's people trying to make the right reforms. You know, if they can just make the right reforms, they can usher in God's kingdom. We see that like throughout Nehemiah that we preached through at GLC a number of years ago. Where it's like, if we can just make these right reforms, then surely we'll usher in the kingdom of God. And then at the very end, everything kind of falls apart. And Nehemiah gets so angry that he's pulling people's hair out. You know, and it's like everyone's so frustrated because they see that they can't do it. The darkness is withheld so that they could see their need for a savior. It's like, this is why one of the most important Advent texts to reflect on. If you haven't yet, reflect on it tonight. Reflect on it tomorrow. Matthew 1.21, the angel's conversation with Joseph. You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. If you get this wrong... You miss everything because you fundamentally misunderstand the problem that Jesus came to address, the darkness that you're in. You know, this should call to mind for us, another quick example, places like Deuteronomy 29 where Moses is addressing the Israelites. And listen to what he says. He says, with your own eyes, you saw those great trials, those miraculous signs and wonders. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a mind that understands or eyes that see or ears that hear. To this day, you don't, you don't see. And you might say, well, that's, if the Lord had given them those things, well, sure. But we wouldn't see our need for him. We wouldn't understand how deep the rabbit hole goes, the sin of the human heart. So first we see light that's kept from darkness. God's showing us our sin, our need of him. And you know, each one of these actions of Advent comes with like a response on our part. And I would say that the action on our part is to recognize your need for Jesus. Like, light that's kept from darkness should result in us recognizing our need for him. It should result in us seeing, like, I can't just sentimentalize this. There's a huge weight of need on my shoulders for Jesus. I need him. I need him. I need the light. I'm in darkness, right? And that brings us, secondly, to light that looks like darkness because If we misunderstand this first part, number two can very much result. So look at verses 42 to 43. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And I want to read that verse 43 again because it's so central to this point. They loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So... Okay, the light was kept from darkness, but now that light shines in the text. And some reject it. Some reject it outright, you know. But the text tells us that there are some, even from within the religious authorities, that are opposing Jesus, that Sanhedrin that we were talking about, in which there was this rising opposition to now kill Jesus, there's there's some from within those authorities that have been growing in their belief of him, their faith. But the response to the light here that they have is functionally no different from the prior responses of unbelief. It looks the exact same. Like they might have some kind of belief in their heart, but they're moving forward in opposition against Jesus with the rest, or at the very least they're not saying anything about it. Functionally, it looks exactly the same. That is to say, the light by which these religious leaders claim to see looks an awful lot like darkness. The reason for it is this moralism that we've been talking about that drives us to fear this idea that like, it's what I do, like if, if, I, if I act the right way, if, I'm a, if, I, if I pray enough, if I do enough, then I can, then God and others will accept me and love me, right? That leads to fear. It's like, then if I'm not doing the right things, then I won't be accepted. And we see that fear here, they're, they're afraid that if they say the wrong thing about Jesus, the social consequences will be too great. The social consequences around them. The problem is, they've staked out which glory is most important to them, which treasure is most valuable to them, whose glory they'll be living for, and it's theirs. Ultimately, like, yeah, it's the glory of man, but really it's theirs, not Christ's. So Carson is super helpful here, all right? He says, Sadly, their faith was still so weak that they would not take any step. that would threaten their position in the synagogue. They still knew nothing of the powerful new birth that could make them children of God and enable them to enter the kingdom. Almost certainly John knew of Jews and proselytes in his day who were happy enough to believe in Jesus in some sense, but who displayed similar hesitations. He wants them to know, and listen to this, he wants them to know such secret faith will not do. Such secret faith will not do. Think about this for a minute. While it's possible for the gospel to have a kind of hardening effect on our hearts, where we like, where the world outwardly rejects and despises him, where, where it's more in your face of a response against Jesus, it's also possible to have that kind of hardening effect inward, you know, to have an inward rejection and really an inward despising of Jesus that occurs when we're ashamed of the gospel. A kind of rejection that maybe doesn't appear to be as vehement, but functionally it, it looks the same lives like the rest of the world. It puts my glory ahead of Christ's. And as a result, when push comes to shove, we won't take any step that will threaten our position in the wider culture. If the culture determines, orthodox Christian belief makes you bigoted and hateful, backwards and twisted, though you might inwardly claim faith, faith, but for fear of the culture, you will not confess it. You won't live your life according to it. You'll be more shaped by the surrounding world in any sense than you will the scriptures. So so we need to remember John's readers here, spiritually seeking Jews and Greeks in the synagogue. And when we do that, it has huge repercussions because the action associated with light that's kept from darkness here is to have some kind of like, what John's calling them to, some kind of internal reflection. Evaluation valuation of the degree to which the gospel is transforming your heart. Now, here's what I don't mean. I don't mean placing the weight of law on you and saying, like, boy, if I don't outwardly confess Jesus is Christ 12 times a day, you know, then I must not really love God. No, that's moralism, and that's going to get us trapped into the, ba- the bad stuff that we were talking about, we've been talking about through the whole series. The fear, right, the pride, the arrogance, all of that. I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about is like a Luther quote that we come back to a lot at Gospel Life Church that I'll just go ahead and unashamedly say again, which is, we're saved by grace alone, but grace that saves is never alone. You know, we're saved by grace alone. Grace through faith in Christ alone, that's it. If it was anything other than that, then we could grow in our pridefulness and think, well, I must have been the one who did this. But we're saved. Grace through faith in Christ alone. But you know, grace through faith in Christ alone is never alone. It comes with implications. It comes with a certain way of living. It comes with a a, changing heart and so we look around and we see I'm just living like the rest of the world boy the, the light that I think by which I can see really functionally looks a lot like like darkness it functions a lot like atheism like practical atheism this is a time to reflect and really to go back to number one and to remember the, the reality of our sin and what it is that Jesus came to save us from because look I mean here's the problem it's, it's not like Okay, so Jeremy, you're saying we have three categories. Light that's kept from darkness, you know, for a time. So we can see, you know, because people just reject it and them. Re- so p- some people reject them. Light that looks like re- dar- darkness. Other people, like, have secret faith. But then I'll respond rightly. The problem is you won't. That's what the first part was about. You know, like, we can't respond rightly. And so if we shut our Bibles here, it would be really demoralizing. But there's good news. There's good news. Like, we can't do it. We can't do it, but there's good news on Christmas Eve. And that's the reality that light pierces darkness. Light has pierced darkness. It's come in the flesh. Verse 44, Jesus cried out. He cried out in reaction to this. He cries out and he says, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but he who sent me. Whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. It's another way of saying, right, you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. (laughs) I've come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Jesus has come to save. We're judged already. Remember John 3? Or are judged already. So he says, the one who rejects me does not receive my word, words has a judge. The word that I've spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given himself, has, has, has himself given me a commandment, what to say, what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. The light was kept for a time. That we might see our unbelief and our need. You know, like, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who see their need, those who see that they're in darkness. Right, so it was kept that we might see. The light looked like darkness in the hearts of those who had placed themselves above Christ above Christ, which is all of us. That's the very thing that happened in the garden. That's what Adam does. He ends around God for his own glory. It's the very reason that Jesus had to come. But he did come. The light pierced the darkness in Jesus Christ, and we know that he was the light, because the source of this light is the Father himself. Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me, and whoever sees me sees he who sent me. Jesus, listen to me, he's not some run-of-the-mill external prophet who makes these big claims or sells some kind of religious snake oil moving from town to town. He's from the Father. He and the Father are one. He's the second person of the Trinity. God himself entered into human history. And he entered into human history to save. Because listen, the source of this light is the Father, not us. But the purpose and work of this light is to reveal the good news. And to transform us by it. To change us. To change the way we live. Verse 46, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. The darkness of our heart, the sin that's present there, the rebellion that's present against God actively within the human heart. The light shines on all of that to free us from it, that we might walk in light rather than darkness become like Christ rather than continue on in sin and death. It's not done through our efforts. It's not done through our work. It's not done through something we accomplished. It's done through him. But through him, everything is possible in in relation to following God. And this is done. How how is it accomplished? At the cross. Where the penalty for all those things was placed on Christ rather than us. Let's remember what's happening in John 12. John 12. Like we, at the beginning of Advent, you know, Advent week one, what did we enter into in John? Holy week. How appropriate. Because Jesus is the only person in all of human history who could say he was born to die. The reason he came was to lay down his life. So we can't speak about the incarnation without speaking of of the cross because this was his purpose. The penalty for all those things placed on him rather than us the source of this light is the father purpose and work is revelation and transformation revealing good news changing us by it and the result of that light is eternal life jesus tells us in this text for all who believe and so here at christmas eve we are asked by john yet again how will you respond how will you respond will you reject and face judgment Or, through Christ's work and not your work, realizing the darkness that you're in, realizing the reality of your need, will you throw yourself on his mercies and receive life? So we reflect together on these words tonight. We reflect on this contrast between light and and darkness as now we turn on our own lights. And so I invite you to now do that. You should have grabbed little lights. If you didn't, you can go out and grab one. You can turn them on now to sing carols together, because as we do this, what are we doing? We're remembering all that God was doing when the word became flesh, seeing and understanding the reason for the incarnation. And so as these lights go on around us, as we lift our voices, let me just read this once again. I've come into the world, Jesus declares, I've come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness.